This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matthew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to uh, this morning's conversation, because I feel like this is one of the films on the AFI Top 100 list that I'm most familiar with. I probably revisit the most. I don't know. It's it's just one of the movies that I feel most, uh, I guess, kind of uh, equipped to talk about. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay, that's nice. I mean, how? when was the first time you saw this movie, man? But we're, we're talking about Do the Right Thing from Spike Lee. Yeah, the first time I saw it, uh, I probably would have been in junior high, I'd okay. say. I'd say 7th, seventh, seventh, 8th grade, maybe ninth at the latest. Um, it just would have been a um, it just would have been a blockbuster video rental, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying, I'm going to look it up right now, but uh, I'm trying to remember if, I don't believe it made an appearance on the very first AFI list. No, I think it was a, a later, yeah, induction from but the second it, list. But it was already sort of like a, mod, a, you know, a cultural touchstone or whatever. For sure. So it was certainly the movie that a, a burgeoning cinephile like a young Matt Knudsen would have already, would, or it would have been on my radar for sure. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, always popping up in the, you know, Entertainment Weekly lists of best films or the, you know, Roger Ebert or Leonard Maltin um, guides. So yeah, I, mean, I, I, I vividly remember a picture of uh, of Spike Lee's face resting on Rosie Perez's shoulder. <laughs> Being a Roger Ebert uh, devotee, uh, this was one of his big movies. I think he named it top five of the decade, and it was the number one movie of '89 uh, when it came out. Sure. Um, so it was a thing he mentioned quite a bit. I, I think that's when I started to get into it. I, although I, I guarantee I haven't seen it as many times as as you have, Matt. Um, but yeah. man, I mean, it, it is it is very much of of our time, sort of in our wheelhouse a bit. Yeah, I mean, I certainly was too young to see it when I was in the theater. Um, what's your relationship with Spike Lee like, just in general? Um, I think his I think his misses. I think he has more misses than hits, but his misses are still interesting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I I think he should do. I mean. As much as I enjoy him trying to be sort of transgressive and, and, and interesting, I, 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 you know, I, I would I would like to see him do more sort of inside man, old boy type stuff, right? Like I'd like okay. to see him as a hired gun trying new things in that realm, as opposed to him feeling like he has to have his voice out there the whole time, right? That makes sense. Um, just because I think he's a talented dude, right? Um, like see see him sort of get out of his own head a little bit, maybe, but. Uh, I I like Spike Lee. I like him as a person. I think he's 
you know, for, for a big old basketball fan like myself, he's been in my life constantly hmm. um, for you know for decades. So uh, that's how I feel about his, you know, himself. It, this is one of those things where like this movie is so monumental; it's really hard, um, to, you know, t- to live up to it. And you know, his, his career arc has been uh, very interesting, to say the least. Yeah, this was his uh, third film, I believe. I think so. I want to say, like looking at his filmography right now, yeah, this was his his third feature. Mm-hmm. She's got to have it school days and then do the right thing. Although he's got a movie here called Saturday Night. Oh, I think he may have just directed <laughs> I'm like, he's got a movie called Saturday Night Live? I think he, uh. I think he may have just directed an episode of Saturday Night Live. Well, I don't think they directed He probably directed like some short a, yeah, 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 sketch or something. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so apparently he wrote this screenplay in about two weeks, is what it says here on Wikipedia. Although that sure. could be apocryphal. But yeah, sorry, I mean, ahead. it's certainly... And he was you know in his mid-20s or late-20s, whatever, when he made it, right? Born yeah, I think he was 30 or something. Yeah. 57, 67, 77, yeah, 87. Okay, so he was, yeah, he was just... He was probably 31 when he made it. Um, and he chooses to cast himself in, I guess you could call it the the lead <laughs> role, but it's such an ensemble piece that it's hard to even point toward. But I suppose he is... I think he has the most screen time the in the movie. protagonist, yeah. Right, either him or Sal would, would have the most screen time in the movie. Right. But, and and what? how do you think that affects you as the viewer, that the person who is, you're spending the most time with and who you're following around is also the person who's behind the scenes making all of the decisions for how this narrative will explore these very hot button issues. Well, I think in in 1989, I don't think it would have affected the viewer very much at all because Spike Lee wasn't as as big a name. People didn't know him. Sure. Um, and you know, being there's nothing crazy about being a writer, director, actor, right? And I think Spike Lee in this movie was was so solid in in this movie that there was no questioning. It wasn't sort of a vanity thing. It's not like when Tarantino puts himself in the movies, right? Yeah. Um, And he definitely looks younger than 30. You know, like he looks... Yeah. He definitely looks early 20s, probably. Yeah, he looks like a young guy. Um, I think people watching it now for the first time who are aware of Spike Lee as a famous person, it will be... Uh, more jarring and probably take them out of the movie, you know, just because Spike Lee hasn't continued to act, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it's, it's, so we'll see sort of in a career retrospective way a, a little bit gimmicky. Um, but watching it, you know, watching it again recently, um, I was just sort of struck by how how natural he was in the role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his it doesn't. There's nothing performancey about his performance. But it also doesn't feel stilted, like uh, like oftentimes you know non actors or you know people who aren't classically trained, yeah, can come across. I just think it's so interesting because his personality is so is, is so big and his opinions are so front and center, and there and this is obviously a film about opinions, oftentimes yeah. controversial opinions. That it's very, I think it's very helpful for him to just put himself right out there, uh, front and center. And his mm-hmm. character makes the most controversial decision in the entire movie that occurs during the climax. But we'll get to that eventually. Um, in terms of my relationship with Spike Lee, I mean, I think he's a guy... He, this is certainly... Obviously, this is the first Spike Lee film that I saw. And it really just affected me. 
in a way because of just the there's something about just the confidence of the filmmaking on display mm-hmm. especially for a guy who only made, made a couple of films by that point and I was just very you know taken aback by how right every single decision filmmaking wise was made mm-hmm. um, all the way across the board but I agree with you I think the rest of his filmography is very spotty I have a hard time pointing to other Spike Lee films that really got to me the way this one did mm-hmm. um, I think he certainly perhaps made more ambitious films like you know Malcolm X or whatever but just nothing as successful I mean Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever Crooklyn, Clockers Tales from the Hood <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Get on the Bus I mean Summer of Sam is probably one that I've revisited <laughs> quite a bit a very messy movie but a, a fascinating movie in a lot of ways uh like you mentioned, Inside Man earlier might be his most uh, financially successful film. Twenty mm-hmm. Fifth Hour seems to be a movie that really resonate, resonates with people. Yeah, um, and I think there's some fascinating things going on in it. I I, I think it's a troubled, uh, spotty movie, mm-hmm. but it always will be an important film, like the first post nine eleven movie that really dealt with nine eleven directly. For sure. Um, and then lately, yeah, his very odd old boy remake, which I thought mm-hmm. was pretty 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 bad. And, you know, just, like, expanding out into more experimental stuff, a lot of documentary filmmaking, obviously, he's been very successful at lately. Yeah. I'm interested in his in seeing his most recent Michael Jackson documentary. But you got to hand it to the guy for diversifying and also, like, remaining busy throughout the years, you know? Like, whether his films are successful or not, at least he's out there fighting a good fight, right? And, yeah, I mean, uh, he's... teaching at NYU and... You, know. you can never be mad at someone for being this this prolific, prolific yeah. especially if he continues being interesting, which, like I said, it, it hasn't been great, but at least he's trying things all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just being successful enough with it that he can keep on doing it. Yeah. And he, interestingly, earlier this year, he received, a, you know, the Lifetime Achievement Award or whatever they call it, the Academy gave him an honorary mm-hmm. Oscar and then a couple months later, he chose to boycott the Oscars because of the uh, Oscar So White controversy. So yeah. that says a lot about his personality right there. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but I mean, to do the right thing, it, clearly, I think I don't think anybody would disagree. It's his masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And uh, goddamn, it really just—it's one of those films that just gets better and better every every time I watch it. It's just so—it's just such a rich tapestry. It's uh, really interesting characters. It works so well. It works like as an individual, very specific character play, you know, between all this huge cast of characters, but also like it's a big allegorical think piece as well, right? So it works on both those levels, and uh, the acting all around is great. The the characters are just evocative of of a specific place and time. Um, You know, it transports you transports you into this world in a way that you know people had sort of, you know, whitewashed, I suppose. Um, and it's just interesting to see, <laughs> like, my, my sister uh, moved to Brooklyn a couple years ago to right next to Bed-Stuy, and, like, things have changed, yeah, for sure. It's, it's not, it's not like, that, that's funny, my sister lives in Brooklyn as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not like this anymore. Um, as a matter of fact, there's an interesting scene where uh, John Savage, in a weird cameo, 
is talking to Giancarlo Esposito and Martin Lawrence and all those guys about how he, you know, bought this brownstone. You know, who taught, who told you to buy a brownstone in this neighborhood? It kind of <laughs> predicts a little bit the gentrification of the neighborhood that would that would define the. Oh yeah, that seems right on the it, money. Yeah. Guy, with, guy with his bike. <laughs> right. Is um, this is this one of the best New York films ever made? I mean, by a true New York filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess obviously your Very number specific. one, my number one would probably be Manhattan. Right. Um, <laughs> that couldn't be a further New York. I mean, bed, no, bed side two opposite the ends of the universe, upper sure. east side of Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, then it just goes to show you, like, there's so many, so many stories in the Naked City. But yeah, this is about a specific neighborhood and even a specific street that mm-hmm. the movie pretty much never leaves. I mean, Matt, in this movie, it's it's almost like the city's another character. Hey, hey, how about that? How novel. <laughs> Damn it. You make that up right now? <laughs> I hate it so <laughs> Write much. that down. I hate it. Um, no, yeah, it, it, th- I think that's the cool part is it is so hyper-specific. It, it could have been a play, you know? Sure. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I'd have to sit down and look at uh, movies that are just about New York as a city, but is this the best Brooklyn movie? Probably. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's important to delineate between films that take place primarily in Brooklyn and films that take place primarily in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, well, continuing with um, hyperbolic notions, um, <laughs> is this the best film ever made about racial tension? Ooh. Uh, yeah, I mean, people would... I mean, there's a there are a bunch of big movies about this, sort of, right? Um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, for one. Sure. Would you call that about racial tension? Sure, would sure. you call... In the Heat of the Night. Yeah, in the heat of the night. Um, If we're not counting, like, historical sort of racial big wars over in Europe or something, right, Um, then, yeah, maybe. This is, I I think if if you ask someone what is the most iconic movie about racial tension, um, this is certainly it. Because, like I said, it's not not reliant on, like, a very specific thing. Like, the end of the movie turns into this, this big symbolic parable of a tale um and he just the way spike handles the end of this movie and and the and the way he set everything up uh for this sort of you know insane fiery uh finish uh you the the audience is left to side with parts of everyone's like different views right Mm -hmm. um and even the final sort of uh Quotes the the hypocritical quotes from you know Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It's like you walk out of this movie and it's it's so clever in that he doesn't force you in one direction or the other. I would agree with that. I would agree he doesn't force you in one direction or the other as the viewer. I think it's pretty clear who he sides with, right? <laughs> and well, you only need to go. You only need to look to see after this film. He made a Malcolm X movie. He never made a movie about Martin Luther King. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's that's true. So, I mean, I was I was just reading about this before the podcast, and uh, uh, Spike Lee said only white people ask him if Mookie did the right thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a really go go on YouTube and, and try and find a, um, the the interview he did at Cannes in 1989, where there's a bunch of you know French critics um, asking him why Mookie throws the throws the uh, trash can through the window, and he's he gets very. I don't say he gets defensive about it, but he definitely you could definitely tell he's like, Why would you even ask me that question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He Yes. Mookie makes a deci- the main character of Mookie makes a decision at the end of this film which um basically causes the 
plot to explode into a, an all-out riot. Yes. Uh, it's the most famous sequence in the film, uh, in, in my list, my little uh, prompt list that we do for all these AFI conversations. I have mm-hmm. what is the best scene of the film. I'd say, my favorite scene of the film, I'd say it's clearly the release at the end. Oh, of where course, everything yes. finally explodes. It's a towering climax. Mm-hmm. Um, but the character who was basically kind of trying to keep it all together, the character who was trying to keep everything even keeled, kind of trying to... Dis- uh, to extinguish any potential racial tensions, uh, working for a white, you know, male um, at the pizza shop. The guy who basically was, I'd say, the least likely to um, to make an ovation like this is the guy mm-hmm. who finally does, and he destroys this. He destroys his place of business. Uh, Asking whether or not he makes makes the right decision or not might be a conversation for a different day in a different context than just talking oh, yeah. about the movie. We don't need to do that. Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but it's I mean talk of, I mean in in the in the category of character decisions that inspire conversation. It doesn't mm-hmm. get much more complex than this, right? Yeah, I mean typically in these sorts of racially based movies, you look at something as sort of reductive as crash, right? Oof. Whereas like you are meant you you know, maybe they, they, they lead you one way and send you the other, but you are meant to think exactly one thing after this uh, you know, after the movie. Like this the ambiguity in here creates such uh, you know, wonderful discussion mm-hmm. uh, after the fact, and you know this movie's still very relevant, and it's it, it's a great conversation starter to say the least. I just love movies that are able to, you know, inspire a physical reaction, and, and this movie is all about the heat. Right, it takes place on the hottest day of the summer. Mm-hmm. We, you and I, both express our love for films that take place all in one day or all over one night, and this Absolutely. is definitely in that category. And there's a sense of just not only building tension but building building up steam you mm-hmm. know where is this leading where is this leading everything is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter until it finally releases you really have to hand it to a filmmaker who can make you really feel like your your temperature is rising as you're mm-hmm. watching it and as a as a younger filmmaker i found myself being very kind of put off by certain sequences that were very uncomfortable Mm-hmm. I'm pointing to a, 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 a sequence which I have in my notes here is my least favorite scene in the film only because it might be the most uncomfortable scene for me in the movie where Turturro, John Turturro and Danny, his father Danny Al are having a conversation and mm-hmm. it's basically Turturro coming clean about how much he dislikes the people in the neighborhood and then the character of Smiley comes over and starts rapping on the window and then mm-hmm. Turturro runs outside and just starts berating him and just starts shouting at him and calling him names, just being a horrible person. Yes, yes. and it's all captured in one shot. It doesn't. It doesn't cut. It's very mm-hmm. Steve McQueen esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, before there was a Steve McQueen, um, <laughs> and it's just insanely uncomfortable. Like it's a really tough scene to watch. And this movie is has a lot of scenes like that. And mm-hmm. as a young, like I said, as a younger viewer, I just would be fine. Would find it very tough to watch scenes like that. But now I realize as a more sophisticated film watcher how important it is that those scenes do kind of make your skin crawl a little bit that they do raise the tension that they do get you to clench up a little bit and they just can they just compound and compound and compound and build until there's a release yeah i mean i was gonna say but the the least comfortable scenes in the entire movie are all the Totoro scenes generally yeah he's he's intense mm-hmm. uh yeah so i think those two 
makes sense as, as best seen and in worse scene. I mean, it, it's hard to yeah, go anywhere else but that final scene. Yeah, um, and then and let me preface: I don't think that's a bad. I don't think there is a bad scene in that movie. That just has to be my least favorite scene because I, I find it to be the least, the most uncomfortable. But yeah, this is gonna, a this is a practically perfect movie. There's there isn't many thing I can really think of that I would change about this film. Yeah, and it's you know, the the there's so many characters that are set up and in, in a seemingly sort of relaxed way. Um, conversationally, but it, it it doesn't ever feel meandering, right? Like it's all it always feels tight and with a purpose. Yeah. And uh, you know the way the the characters are set up in the, in the scenes is always you know entertaining or thought provoking. So it's and so funny, so consistently funny. Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. Danny Aiello, John Turturro, and um, what's the other actor's name? I'll find him in a second here. Who plays the other brother? Yeah, are just effortlessly funny. And then the three. The little Greek chorus, uh, Frankie Faison, mm-hmm. the three dudes sitting in front of the uh, big red wall, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. are so goddamn funny. Mm-hmm. And then, lest we forget, Rosie Perez. This is her first film. And if you find that very... Some people probably find that very specific Rosie Perez. Um, oh, sorry. Somebody's calling me. That's right. Um, the, the, like the, the credit sequence, the opening scene. Well, well we could, yes, let's talk about that as well. But I just mean, I just mean specifically the Rosie Perez accent and approach, oh. and sort of almost <laughs> great. Like I find it really funny. I think she's fantastic in this, and I laugh every time she's on screen because she's just so big, you know. Yeah. Um, and this is her first film, and there's a there's a legendary story about how Spike Lee, she was like dancing at Spike Lee's birthday party at some point and he just couldn't take his eyes off her and I think they actually were dating when he made this movie uh, but yes um, the opening credit sequence is amazing it's there's just nothing else like it, it and it's it's so abstract you know it really has nothing to do yeah. with the narrative but yeah. it makes perfect sense you get that NWA song Ooh, and not NWA. Public Enemy, public enemy excuse me. Wow, I really sound like a suburban white guy <laughs> yeah. um, you get the Public Enemy song in there and Rosie Perez is just fucking sweating you know, just it's so good. She's working it. It's amazing. Um, okay, so I think we were both uh, we both understand why this is on the list. Uh, not only is it a great, you know, perfect little film, uh, it's also extremely culturally significant and will continue to be uh, in the future. Uh, kind of crazy it didn't make it to the top 100 the first go around, and then the 10th anniversary just snuck in at 96. In there. Yeah, well, it's been a controversial film, obviously, since the beginning. Um, Spike Lee obviously has his... There's lovers and haters within the film community. Mm-hmm. Uh, for him, um, he obviously has no interest in kowtowing to the Academy or to the AFI or anything like that. Um, it's also interesting to note that even though it was one of the most critically acclaimed films of 1989, it did not get a Best Picture nomination, and Spike uh, was nominated for his screenplay, but not for director. No. Um, the and only Danny Aiello was nominated. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That's exactly where I was going. The yeah. only uh, in this entire cast of incredible actors, not the least of which Ozzie Davis and um, Ruby Dee, mm-hmm. who are just fucking phenomenal. Um, Spike, you know, or uh, Spike Jones, uh, Samuel Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, Frankie Faison, um, all these guys. Danny, a white guy. <laughs> a white, not that Danny Allen doesn't deserve to be nominated. I think he does. It's just, I'm certain. Imagine what it must have been like for Spike to wake up that morning and look at the Oscar nominations <laughs> and to see <laughs> the the white guy yeah. get himself uh, the Oscar nomination. Pretty obnoxious. Although he's, 
he is the, I mean, I'd say next to Spike, he obviously has this, the second most amount of screen time in this film, probably, right? In a way, he's almost the co-protagonist. He has his own journey. Yeah, I think it's clearly those two yeah. on top of it, everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, so this movie is clearly, uh, I would say, underrated on this list. Yeah, I'd uh, put it higher myself. Yeah, I think I'd probably put it more towards, you know, the middle, middle third of the, of the list, but, uh. You know, maybe once we get to the very end, we'll we'll have our own rankings of these top 100. Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Just coming up with. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we we talked about Danny Allo, Ozzy Davis, Ruby D, Richard Edson. He plays the other um, the other brother, Giancarlo Esposito, very yes. young Giancarlo Esposito, who's <laughs> fantastic and uh, just a total uh, rabble rouser in this. Um, and then Bill Nunn, who plays Radio Rahim whose death kind of really, you know, lights the fuse, mm-hmm. as it were. And then, uh, and then, of course, Samuel Jackson, who's this... God, what a smart, <laughs> what a smart screenwriting device yeah. to have a guy... He's, he's he, again, sort of like a Greek chorus or almost a narrator in a way, who's, who's um, he's the local disc jockey, and mm-hmm. we just keep checking in with him, and he keeps sort of like grounding us throughout the. We start with him, we yeah. end with him. It's just it's so. But he's also just like down the road have. and tangible. Like you yeah, know, <laughs> he talks to our characters all you know off air too. So <laughs> yeah, and he and he, he comments on them as they walk by his window. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, I guess maybe it's a little bit unrealistic to think that you have a disc jockey who is on the air for fourteen hours a day or whatever it is. <laughs> hey, local community radio. Right? I guess so. Yeah, it, and it's very it's it's very similar to um, uh, what's his name uh, Stephen Wright in um, oh. in uh, Reservoir Dogs. I was gonna say what's her face in The Warriors. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that exactly. That's another good. Um, oh, that might be the best New York movie. <laughs> Why that is not on the AFI Top 100 <laughs> list, I'll never understand. But yes, um, do the right thing. Uh, one of my favorite films, and uh, just a just a true a true modern classic. One of the best films of the '80s for sure. And um, yeah, can't say enough good things about it. All right, I love this movie. Well, this has been number 96 on our AFI countdown journey. See ya. Hey!